Bible reading now. If you have your Bible, turn to Numbers chapter 22. And we're going to read bits and pieces of 22 and 23. So you're best just follow along and uh, you'll see where we're going when we get there. Numbers 22. Starting in verse 1. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped um, along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all Israel had done to the Amorites and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor near the Euphrates River in his native land. And Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of this land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed. Whoever you curse is cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. And when they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people has come out of Egypt and covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. And jumping down to verse 18. But Balaam answered them, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small as to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now spend the night here so I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them. But only do what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went and the angel of the Lord stood on the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with the drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with walls on both sides. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. And then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam. And he was angry and beat it with his staff. And then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam answered the donkey, you've made me a fool. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing on the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, what have you beaten your donkey these three times? 
I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now if you are displeased, I'll go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with these men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. And then in Numbers 23, verse 5, the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this word. So he went back to him and found him standing beside his offering with all the Moabite officials. Then Balaam spoke this message. Balak bought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks, I see them. From the heights, I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number even a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you here to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered, must I not speak what the law puts in my mouth? And then finally in Romans chapter 8, in the New Testament from verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I have a question for you to think about as we plod through these few chapters today. Um, What is the assurance that will make it as a Christian? What's the assurance that you're going to make it in life as a Christian? Is it your ability? Is it your strength and wisdom? Is it your good heart and devotion to God? Is it your knowledge on your friends in the church that will help you make it? Is it feeling valued in the church, finding friends there? Or is it deconstructing the Christian faith at some point in your life? That's how you're going to make it as a Christian. What is it for you? What's going to help you make it as a Christian? Well, I, for one, am really glad that my progress in the faith and God's love of me is not dependent upon how I feel or what I can do. Because if I could lose my salvation, I would have lost it a long time ago. After all, isn't it the case 
Monday morning or Sunday morning comes and you set out with good intentions of January 1 to read the Bible in a year and, and you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, you say. And along the way, life kind of just happens. And we see that in the book of Numbers, don't we? That God gives them everything they need to succeed in this wilderness journey and with, with his tabernacle and the food and his presence and the family members and, and the leaders. But then the wilderness is tough and they grumble and they're distracted and they sin. It's a bit like um, these greyhounds on the screen you'll see in just a moment. They are racing so well and faithfully with a white rabbit until they see a real rabbit come along. Have a look at this. You know, I think God's people are a bit like that in numbers. If you had to summarize the whole book in 15 seconds, God gives them everything they need in front of them to follow faithfully, and then sin and distractions, temptation, grumbling, will come at them and throw them off a bit like the real rabbit. What hope do they have? What hope do we have of getting back on track when that happens so often in life, when we feel overworked and unwell, underappreciated, and so not sure? Well, as we've seen, God is actually really gracious in the wilderness, isn't he? I mean, let's not forget that he has given them his presence and families and clans and leaders and food and water and his visible presence as they travel. So they can journey on from the already of their salvation in Egypt to the not yet of their inheritance in the land. And today we have another glimpse of what life is like as we journey on with God It is the blessing of being protected by God because you belong to God. Numbers 22 to 24 is all about being protected by God because you belong to God. God protects his people, that's it. Moreover, you have to realize too, this happens when God's people are totally unaware at the time. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 22. You may have missed it in the reading. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped across the Jordan along the Jordan, across from Jericho. And that's the last we hear of them for three chapters. If I go back to the map, this is where we've been so far in Numbers. The orange line was where we began at Mount Sinai, and they've gone up, and they went to the wilderness of Zin, and in Numbers uh, 13, and they decide to scout the land, but they don't get in, and they have to spend 38 years actually wandering in circles, and they come back in Numbers 20, and then Miriam dies, and Moses gets a slap on the wrist because he's unfaithful and Aaron dies and the water comes from a rock and they have to go down around Edom and they grumble because it's a detour. Look how far they have to go and the snake on the pole happens and and they finally go all the way up to Moab and cut through the guts of it and now in Numbers 22.1 they're just sitting here. Camped, frustrated, grumbling and God protects them and they have no idea this whole thing happens at the time. Balaam even climbs a hill later and looks down at them and goes, hmm, I see them camped. They don't know I'm here. Which means God sees the threats, even if they don't. It means God is actively looking after his people, even when they are unaware. It means God is for his people, even when they grumble and complain and continue to show a lack of faith and trust in him. Even if you haven't a clue, God is protecting you. I read an article last week 
that said the Western nations produce more lawyers than engineers. And if you're an engineer, I'm sorry. And it goes on to say this is really problematic and common because people don't keep their word. Then we need mountains of legal paperwork to hold someone to account, right? We like to see how far we can get to the line, sometimes as a business, before crossing it because you get as close as you can and that's morally permissible, isn't it? And while we might be tempted as humans to walk away and abandon our agreements very easily when it's convenient for us, God is not going to abandon his covenant with his people. And that is a cause for great comfort and hope. Our sovereign, omnipresent, all-knowing God is faithful to himself. And that means he'll keep his covenant to both protect and bless his people when some threats and curses in this particular instance come at them. Even when they're camped, even when they're unaware. And even as we learn about Moab and how the king of Moab is Balak and he's totally not thrilled to see God's people. So let's look at this. First few verses, a king with a devious intent. Now, Balak is the king of an emerging tribe fighting for supremacy. And he's heard about this people group walking around for a long time now. And the five rulers of Moab who make up the territory are all very afraid. And they think they're going to be devoured and eaten up alive by them because they've had a little bit of success so far. But basically, their God is getting a reputation of being so strong and for them that they can't really stand against them. And so Balak comes up with a devious plan. He sends for a wizard to curse God's people. He perceives, very rightly so, that their God is strong and that an all-out war isn't going to really work. And he knows the best wizard is up north in Mesopotamia, a long way away, and he's a guy called Balaam. And it's really confusing that Balak and Balaam are both in this narrative and they both have B names, but it's... um, And Balaam has gained a reputation for cursing and blessing people and nations by divination. And so Balak sends money and offerings to get in touch with the God behind Israel through Balaam to convince this God to stop protecting them and because Balak pays the right price, curse them instead because he thinks God's like that are for sale. You can just pay them off at the right price. It's a devious plan. What we see in this narrative is the truth of Romans 8.31 playing out for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? I'm convinced that neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the narrative form of that verse. So we meet a king with a devious intent, but we also meet Balaam, who has a divided heart, because he's a politician and a wizard. He makes a living from spinning words, and his loyalties are always divided and constantly changing. It's it's common, as it was then today, for people to think they can buy spiritual guidance. Maybe you've read horoscopes before or know someone into tarot card reading to see what the future holds to bring you luck and guidance. And so leaders of Moab and Midian think they need to pay pay Balaam the fee to do what they want. Now, that would have included money, but also the the objects needed for the ceremony to call a god to them. And when they arrive to Balaam, he's actually really happy to get paid. So he just says, oh, I'll find out what this god says. And the question is, at this point, is uh, Balaam a hero or a villain? Is he a sinner or is he a saint? 
But remember though, Balaam made a living from his words, and such people that make money, money from talking often don't mean what they say or say what they mean. And that's Balaam to a T. He's never a good guy in this story. In fact, you can see on the handout that there's other references to Balaam in the Bible, from Nehemiah all the way to Revelation, and every single time Balaam is a bad guy who only wants gain from money. And while he knows, he's a clever guy, Balaam, that you can't just turn on a divine curse like a tap, he tries really hard to do it. And what he doesn't realize that, in trying to curse this particular group of people and their God, he puts himself in direct opposition to this God, to God's word of blessing to them. Because God is not interested in the highest bidder. The God of the Bible does not show favor because you can give him something or you have a good reputation amongst other people. That is not how God works. In fact, God has said he'll bless this people back in Genesis 12. Listen to the word blessing and cursing here. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. And Balaam and Balak are now in opposition to God's word. God's blessing to protect his people is a protection of belonging to him because no curse will stand against them. So then in verse 9, God shows up to Balaam and says, Balaam, who are these men? God, of course, is not ignorant, as if he doesn't know what the nations are doing. He's actually interacting with other nations at this moment, right? God's people are camped on a hill unaware. This is for Balaam's benefit. God is asking Balaam to think carefully now who is in control and what's on offer. Balaam says, oh, they're men from a king and they want me to curse this people so he can fight and win. And then God says really, really quite actually uh, up front, don't go and don't curse. They're blessed. In fact, all your efforts are just useless. But just because God says you can't doesn't mean the spiritual forces and evil forces don't try. Because Balaam really wants the circumstance to be different. His reply in verse 13 is a little foggy. He says, I can't go with you. He doesn't say, I can't curse. He says, I just can't go with you. And so the envoys think, oh, we just need more gold. So they travel back to Balak and say, he's not coming. Give us more gold. So they get more gold. They go back up and they say, Balaam, we've got lots more gold now. How about now? And Balaam is divided. The prospect of more money is such a beautiful thing. And he says, well, I can't go against God's command, but I can't ask him a second time. Maybe God will change his mind. So in verse 19, they come back and he tries again. Maybe God's going to bless them now that they need some more in my favor to do so. You know, we often tell our kids no means no, and they try to negotiate something. You say, no, we're not doing this. But no, I'm not changing my mind. No means no. And they might go on about it for a while. And this is Balaam. He does not understand no means no. So what's God going to say a second time? Well, then you hit this strange verse, probably the strangest verse in the entire narrative. And it says in verse 20, God came that night to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Now, God draws Balaam back to his first question. Who are these men? Do you remember Balaam? Do you remember? Who are they? Recall where they came from and what they said. And I said, no, they want to curse God's people. 
And it's really, it's really tricky, isn't it? Because is God changing his mind at this point? Is he just bending his will to Balaam because, you know, the pressure's been put on? Well, I, there's, uh, you can see the NIV up there and the ESV. And the word if and the word since are different. And I think the ESV really helps to actually capture what's going on more than the NIV does here. If these men, if these men and this reward really matters more than me and my command, then go. But if you choose to go, know that my word will stand and you will not be able to curse them. You can't curse them. It will turn into a blessing. Going is pointless, you see. Go and you'll bless them. You won't get a reward, actually. Stay and no cursing will happen either. You can't win. Balaam can't win. Balak can't win. No one's going to win. If you go, it's not actually going to turn out really well for you at all. Don't go. But his heart's divided. Even in asking a second time, he loves wealth. And and when you see this, it actually helps to explain four other parts of the story that seem really contradictory after this. You may have picked it up. Because in verse 22, God is angry that Balaam goes. Did he just say go and don't go and go and now he's really upset? No. Balaam wants Balak's reward over obedience. He wants to curse them to get the money. Balaam is the flaky one here. He's going against God's intent by going. Then in verse 23, verse 19, Balaam even says... God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does God speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? You see, God hasn't said to Balaam, go and curse my people. God is a constant one here, not Balaam. Moreover, later on when Balaam says, I'm sorry, God, I'll just go home, and God says, no, keep going... Balaam has realized that he cannot say anything but what the Lord God intends for his people. It takes us a bit of time to realize what God's saying. It takes us twists and turns of life to hear what God's telling us through his word sometimes. It takes Balaam, a foot-crushing, humiliating donkey experience, to realize who this God is that he's trying to get in touch with. And it begs us to ask the hard question at this point too. Do we confess faith in God and then deny it with our actions? Because that's Balaam. Deep down, your heart and my heart says, right now today perhaps, I love Jesus, that's why I'm here. But on Monday morning and Wednesday night, my actions show that I don't really love him. Who we date, what we watch, where our money goes, the way we view our bodies and work all tells a very different story. A story like Balaam. That really wants things to be different because we just want what we want. And we keep wanting God to change his mind and circumstances change so we ask God again, maybe now is the time to indulge in this, to bend to our desires. Do you know... uh, A man called Abraham Kuyper said at the turn of the century, there is not a square inch of the whole dominion of our human existence over Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. And Balaam is about to learn that in a very famous story about a donkey. You know, sometimes the 
um, criminal underworld bubbles over into everyday life. And we've seen it in the last few weeks, haven't we, in Sydney with some of the arrests and the, there's a shooting at a barber um, recently. And so too, sometimes the spiritual world occasionally interrupts earthly life as well. And such an event happens here. And long before the Shrek movies, Balaam has his own talking donkey experience. And in chapter 22, verses 22 to 27, we have this curious account. And there's a few things we need to say about this. First of all, a speaking animal in the Bible is really, 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 really rare. As in, the snake in Genesis 3 and the donkey here are the only two animals that ever speak. Both instances are the moment the spiritual interrupts the typical. Secondly, in the story, it's actually meant to make you laugh. Remember, who is Balaam? He's the world-famous wizard. And a donkey, and in the slang word for a donkey, has more insight than he does. She stops twice. Balaam is a super-famous wizard and hasn't got as much insight as an animal. Third, notice the Lord is the one to open the donkey's mouth in verse 28 and to open Balaam's eyes in verse 31. Balaam is not only ignorant, but he's blind spiritually, and for all his reputation, he's just at the mercy of God. And so are every other spiritual forces. The angel says, I would have killed you if, not I, if I hadn't done that yet. And fourthly, you see Balaam's divided heart again. Because the biggest surprise is not the donkey talking. The donkey talks, and what does Balaam say? You're an idiot. There's no like, hold on a minute, there's a donkey talking, maybe I should just stop and you know, clean my ears out. Balaam doesn't think anything of it. He is so motivated for wrongdoing that he misses what God is up to with an animal literally talking to him. It's just like some of the Pharisees in Jesus' day when Jesus heals the man's hand right in front of him and they say, oh, Jesus, thanks for healing the man. No, they say, you shouldn't have done that today. You know, this person's been crippled for their whole life and Jesus fixes them up by his word and all this religious leaders can say is, wrong day of the week, Jesus. You must be from the evil one. And the angel says in verse 32, back to Balaam, you're on a reckless path, emphasizing again Balaam's divided heart going when God said no, going to try and curse God's people. But the donkey is God's mercy because this faithful donkey saved him from a run-in with a divine warrior. And the moment Balaam saw this, he confessed his sin and God knew Balaam will only say what I tell him to now. He can be used as God's instrument. Yes, the nations of ungodly peoples can be used by God for his purpose read Isaiah. No nation, no person can interrupt God's agenda for his people. No nation, no person, no cursing can interrupt where they're headed. God will preserve them so that they can be a blessing to the whole world through the eventual birth of the Son of God himself. Because God is devoted to his people. And that's the final section. Now, Balak doesn't have any idea what's happening. Neither do God's people at this point, actually. And Balaam gets there and says, I'm here, thank you, but I can only say what God says. And Balak says, yes, 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 that's fine. We'll, we'll set the offerings up. We'll get seven altars ready and we'll, we'll offer all the bits and pieces we need so that I can secure what I want. So you're going to curse them because we'll give God the best that he needs. But it doesn't work. It turns out that God has known all along what Balak and Balaam are up to. 
And then four poems happen in the next two chapters of Balak trying really hard to curse them and Balaam just saying, ah, God's telling me this instead. Because God says in verse 7 of chapter 23, Balak, I know what you're doing and you can't curse this people because in verse 9, they're actually unlike any other nation because Yahweh God is for them. In fact, they're only going to go from blessing to more blessing. They'll increase in population, verse 10. They will be holy and upright, verse 10 again. In fact, their strength comes from their God, not from their ranks or their population. And in chapter 24, in perhaps the worst blow Balak could ever imagine, in verse 8 to 17, their future is a bright one. In another poem, God says he's going to give them a star, a ruler from Jude, from Jacob, which is one of the tribes, one of the family groups. A strong, mighty, bright, beautiful ruler who will conquer the other nations will come out of this people. Which means their entire existence is actually one of being blessed by God even in the face of opposition. A blessing that's both now and future. They're secure, they're safe. They will make it to the land because their God is a strong, faithful one. And Balak, if you read chapter 24 and, and the end of um, verse 11 in chapter 23, he's just he's enraged and humiliated because his time and his money, his ambition is just a waste. And he grumbles and then it just fizzles out. In the very end it says, and they just went home. In a very ironic twist of events, after all that effort, they just go home. That's it. But actually, um, Balaam never makes it home. In chapter 31... Midian employ him again. And he spends time with them. He makes political alliances with the Midianites. And then in chapter 31, when God's people uh, end up going into the city of Midian, they kill Balaam. And then for the rest of the story, Balaam becomes a negative example of seeking gain from wrongdoing. For all his true words, for all the time he said, my Lord, I'm sorry, his devotion was nothing but lip service. God was simply a means of gain. I'll say whatever I want to not get killed by a warrior and to try and get a bit more gold. So you bring it back to the question at the start, what's the assurance that we're going to make it as God's people? God. God is faithful to his covenant. God is devoted to his people and stronger than all the forces of evil that come against them. You see, Balak wants to curse them so they can't get into the land. But because God has preserved them and blessed them and will bless them, Balaam actually tells Balak, an unstoppable ruler will come from this people. A star will come out of Judah, who is a just ruler, who will defeat the enemies of God, so they can make it into not just a physical patch of dirt, but along to a new city, a heavenly city. That as God's people, they enjoy the blessing of God's faithfulness. And in this moment, in this instance, in this time, it was his presence and his victory. Which means because of God's promise to bless and keep them through this star that would come, we know that it turns out it's actually Jesus who's the unstoppable Christ. So that anyone can now belong to God as his people and enjoy the blessing of knowing that God is for them. And to be more specific, the assurance at Trinity Church Golden Grove that you and me will make it is actually God's commitment to bless his people through the unstoppable Christ. 
You see, Numbers reminds us life is like the wilderness. It's hard, it's long, it's full of struggles. There's death, there's injustice. And what I'm saying is that just as God protected his people from spiritual curses of Balak and Balaam in Jesus, who is the Christ, God protects us as we journey on to make it to the greater inheritance, a new Jerusalem in the new creation to come. Our hope came in the star that Balaam once spoke of, the star who judged sin and death and Satan and evil forces at the cross, so that we can say the words of Romans 8, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand in opposition to us receiving that future? That because Jesus died, he secured all things this future inheritance brings with it. Romans 8, 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up. He'll graciously give us all things. And with this assurance that no condemnation from sin can stand or accusation from Satan will stick or curses can interrupt like Balak tried, the risen Jesus has justified us before God and actually intercedes for us before God. Because his voice before God is what counts, not Balak or Balaam trying to curse. Who then is the one to condemn? No one. Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. And even if we face death and die and are persecuted, it will actually not cut us off from Jesus anyway. It will not affect in any way our belonging to God or the future that is ours because of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? Yes, physical distress and pain and hurt and disasters are rife. We are sheep to be slaughtered, as Paul says in that verse. The wilderness is not a kind place. It's especially not kind to God's people. But we're not like Balaam seeking the glory and prosperity of this life. That's not the vision God has for his people. In Christ, we have an inheritance that no misfortune can touch. For I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as life happens and as the rabbits come at us, God through Christ by his Spirit is walking with us, leading us on to our eternal inheritance, telling us, fear not, little flock. It is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom of God. And so, we press on with the unstoppable Jesus who has blessed us in the spiritual places, who has secured us a future, gives us his presence, guarantees that you will make it there because he is faithful. So, let's do that. Let's press on together as God's people, shall we? Monday morning, midweek, Next week as we gather, one step ahead, onwards towards the life that God is calling us to, because he is faithful. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the faithful one, that your victory counts, that it's not about how clever or wonderful we are in any way, but what matters is you and your grace, and we see that, that you protect us as your people in Christ. And so, Lord, as we face challenges of this life this week, remind us that you are faithful, 
that you've got us, that no cursing can stand, no death can separate, no frustrations in life can turn off your love for us and the future that is ours and the hope that you give every step of the way. Lord, give us your presence and grace to navigate the wilderness faithfully. It's hard, we're unwell, life is tricky, but you are good. Amen. As you um, drink coffee today, share with someone a thought from today's talk. Lots of stuff thrown at us with Balaam and Balak and the donkey and God's faithfulness, but just share someone. What What stood out to you? Let's encourage each other to keep going.